following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Uh, kia ora, whanau, uh, welcome this morning. Good to see you. I'm Ruben, one of the pastors here. And it's nice to have you here. Uh, if you are new, welcome along. I know I bumped into someone who, this morning here for the first time, so welcome if you are new and just finding your way, finding your place on the journey. That's great, and we're just pleased that you're here today. Uh, I hope you survived Guy Fawkes all right last night. We had, uh, we had fireworks at 2 a.m. Saturday morning, so that was fun. So also feeling a bit sluggish this morning. I uh, hope you survived Halloween it's a crazy week, isn't it, this week of the year? There's a lot going on, asking for lollies from strangers and blowing stuff up. It's a great, great, great week in the life of our nation. So um, it, it, as it happens, I honestly, hand on heart, did not even make this up, and I didn't plan this, but this passage that we're looking at this morning from Jude is the perfect Halloween passage. It's like, it's like God knew. It's like God knows what he's doing around here. Uh, so I know... I'm not, I'm not going to get deep into this, but I, I know that like Halloween is a time like some Christians feel a bit uneasy about it because of all the connotations of evil spirits and demons and the underworld and all this kind of folklore that's grown up around Halloween. Well, all of that is here in this passage this morning. You'll be pleased to know. We've got demons, we've got angels, we've got Satan, we've got archangels, we've got the underworld, we've got people bound in everlasting chains for the day of judgment. It's all going on here in Jude this morning. So uh, you picked a good day to come to church. Here's what I want to do. Uh, play a video, first of all, uh, to set this up with a little bit of an explanation of the origins of Halloween. Okay, so this kind of takes you into a bit of that history, creatively done. And then we will launch from there into the text this morning, which is the book of Jude, verse 5 to 10. First, let's watch this video. Vast armies undead do tread through the night and in hordes march towards hapless victims to frighten. They stumble in step with glass eyes on the prizes, bunched hither, hunched over in monstrous disguises, in sizes not lofty but numbering a throng to unleash on their prey the dreaded. Small faces with traces of mother's eyeliner peer up to the resident candy provider. And there to intone ancient threats learnt verbatim, they lisp. Tis their stark ultimatum. Thus region by region, such legions take plunder. Does this spectacle spectacle cause you to wonder? Just how did our fair festive forebears conceive of this primeval practice called All Hallows' Eve? The answer, if anyone cares to research, surprises. It rises from Old Mother Church. On the cusp of the customary All Saints' Day, the Christian kinsfolk made mocking display. These children of light, both to tease and deride, don darkness, doll down as the sinister side. In preposterous pageants and dress diabolic, they hand to the damned just one final frolic. You see, with the light of the dawn on the morrow, the sunrise will swallow such darkness and sorrow. The future is futile for forces of evil, and so they did scorn them in times medieval. But this is the nature of shadow and gloom. In the gleaming of glory, there can be no room. What force is resourced by the echoing black? When the brightness ignites, can the shadow push back? These forces of darkness, if such can be called, are banished by brilliance, by blazing enthrall. So the Bible begins with this four-resolved fight. For a moment the darkness, then let there be light. 
First grief in the gloom, then joy from the east. First valley of shadow, then mountaintop feast. First wait for Messiah, then long promised dawn. First desolate Friday, and then Easter morn. The armies of darkness, while doing their worst, can never extinguish this dazzling sunburst. Ridicule rogues if you must play a role, but beware getting lost in that bottomless hole. The triumph is not with the forces of night. It dawned with the one who said, I am the light. All, all darkness, all evil, all forces of darkness overcome by Jesus on the cross, banished by his brilliant light. Good to remember. Good to remember. Okay, with that, let's launch into the text. Jude chapter, uh, well, there is only one chapter. Uh, verse 5. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. A strange passage. Weird stuff going on in Jude, isn't there? So I've called this, in keeping with the Halloween theme, I've called this message Four Scary Stories. And this is exactly what Jude does, is he takes us into four stories from the past, some of them from the Bible, some of them, as we will see, not from the Bible. And he does this to put in front of us the theme of God's judgment, it is a bit of a scary theme. It's not a topic I love to preach. It's not a topic I'd naturally choose to preach on if I didn't have to. But this is what happens when you preach through a book like Jude. And it's what happens when you work through books of the Bible and you come up against themes that you'd rather not talk about. But that's preaching the whole counsel of God, isn't it? That's dealing with the whole biblical story, which we try to do here at Shaw, not just pick and choose the parts that we like or make us feel comfortable. So we are dealing with this heavy theme this morning of the judgment of God. That's the theme that is going to weave its way through these stories that Jude tells us. And so see if you can trace that as we go. Let me unpack each of these stories for you, uh, because <clears throat> some are going to take a bit more unpacking than others. So the first story, number one, first scary story is in verse 5. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. What's he talking about here? This is the Exodus story. This is probably the simplest one. Uh, this is the most straightforward one. This is one that we can go straight to the Old Testament and find in Numbers, book of Numbers, particularly chapter 16. Uh, it's the story of God leading his people out of Egypt, the Israelites, 
And along the way, they rebel. Along the way, they numerous times, they grumble, they complain, they usurp Moses and Aaron's authority. And so God brings judgment. We don't know exactly, specifically, which of those incidents Jude is referring to here, but it's quite likely that he's talking about this time in Numbers 16, where the Israelites complain about Moses and Aaron, God's appointed leaders. And so God, as a response to this, he sends a plague upon Israel, and he wipes out 14,700 of them in one go. Way worse than COVID. This is like 100% death rate. This is decimating Israel. This plague that comes, and this is an act of God's judgment. The plague goes on until Aaron stands up and makes a sacrifice and, and makes atonement, the Bible says, for Israel. And finally, the plague stops. But it's a really severe act of God's judgment, really early in the biblical story. And Jude puts that right out there for his readers to say, this is the judgment of God. It's real. This is how seriously God takes sin and rebellion, that's real. And what Jude is doing in his own context is drawing this connection between those rebellious Israelites who are judged by God and these false teachers in the church. And he's saying just in the same way, these false teachers, they're just like those Israelites. They're complaining, they're fault finders, he's going to go on to say, and they therefore stand under the same judgment of God that those Israelites stood under, and the same fate that came to them one way or another is going to come to these false teachers. It's a severe story, it's an unpleasant story, it's uncomfortable, but this is the reality of the judgment of God. So that's story number one. We can deal with it quite quickly because it's right there in the Bible. You can read it for yourself in number 16. But when we get to story number two, it gets a bit more complex. Story number two is in verse six. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. I try to read that in a scary voice. Uh, this, is where, this is one of those folklore stories that feeds into the traditions of Halloween. It's the tradition of the fallen angels. Uh, you can go online and get a fallen angel costume for Halloween. They're right there. It's part of the, part of the mythology that grows up around these things. So what Jude is doing here and this, is, this gets a bit tricky. He is not quoting from the Bible. He's not quoting from the Old Testament. He is quoting from another book. It's called the book of Enoch. Now, you can look in the contents page of your Bible, and you will not find the book of Enoch. It's not there. Uh, but the book of Enoch was written about 200 BC, and it was a book of Jewish literature that was quite popular in the first century. And Jewish people considered the book of Enoch to be inspired prophecy. They considered it to be authoritative. Now, the book of Enoch is not part of the Christian Bible that we have today. So we don't consider Enoch to be the Word of God. You can, you can go and read it. You, the book of Enoch is online. You can go read Enoch. If you've got nothing better to do on a Sunday afternoon, go for it. But as you're reading it, I would not encourage you to think of that as Holy Scripture. That's not the revealed Word of God. But Jude's reflections on the book of Enoch are now contained in what we have as Scripture. So that's the distinction that we need to make. The words of Enoch are not inspired Scripture. Jude's reflections on Enoch are inspired Scripture because they are in the Bible. Does that make sense? So Jude is quoting here this apocryphal source, this extra-biblical material outside of Scripture, because, remember, in Jude's day, they didn't have the Bible like we have it. Jude didn't have the 66 books of the Bible like we have them today. He had the Old Testament, and then there were these other books that were considered authoritative. 
and were considered inspired. So we have to let that inform our reading of Scripture, and that, that's just the background in which Jude's writing. So those are some of the sources, and there's another one coming down the track that he draws on. So let me read you then from the book of Enoch. Okay, Again, not the Bible, but this is where Jude is getting this stuff about the fallen angels. Uh, in the book of Enoch, it says this, And I, Enoch, was blessing the Lord of majesty and the king of the ages, and lo, the watchers called me. Enoch the scribe, and said to me, Enoch, thou scribe of righteousness, go, declare to the watchers of the heaven who have left the high heaven, the holy eternal place. So this is a story about this group of angels called the watchers. That's a great title for a Halloween movie, isn't it? The watchers. And this is a group of angels. They were in heaven with God. And at a certain point, these angels left they left the high heaven. They left the holy eternal place, as Jude's describing it. So these, these angels, they didn't get kicked out. They intentionally left heaven. Now, we can put that together, and this might be triggering some thoughts for you. Uh, we can put that together with references that are in the Bible, particularly in the book of Isaiah, that talk about Satan usurping God's authority and how before creation, Satan, who was an angel himself, he was the most uh, beautiful of the angels, the greatest of the angels. And he usurps God's authority, rises up against God in heaven. This is before anything's made yet. And God kicks him out of heaven. And he's cast down to earth. Now, when you put that with Enoch, it seems like what has happened is as Satan is cast out of heaven, a whole lot of the angels go with him. And they, stupidly, decide to leave. Like Satan gets kicked out, these angels decide to go with him. And as a result of that foolish decision to leave heaven and follow Satan, the fallen angel, here is the fate that Enoch describes for these angels. And from henceforth you shall not ascend into heaven unto all eternity, and in bonds of the earth the decree has gone forth to bind you for all the days of the world. That's very similar to what Jude describes as the way these angels are now kept in darkness, he says, bound with everlasting chains for the day of judgment. Uh, Enoch makes it sound like those angels are cast down to earth, but Jude uses stronger language, that they're in darkness, they're bound with chains. Second Peter actually says God sentenced these angels to hell, to, to dungeons, it says. So the picture you get is these, these fallen angels. And by the way, another word for fallen angels is what? Demons. Oh, that's what demons are. They are angels that have left heaven, uh, abandoned uh, their proper place, their proper dwelling. And so this group of fallen angels called the Watchers abandon heaven. As a result, God has cast them to hell. He has cast them to Hades, to the underworld, where they are in chains until the final day of judgment. I know, I know, this all sounds a little bit Lord of the Rings, uh, but I'm just helping you put the pieces together, drawing on these biblical sources, and then drawing on this tradition that Jude is quoting from here. By the way, we don't want to assume that all demons or fallen angels are currently in hell, bound in chains until the day of judgment. That's clearly not the case, is it? There are demons that are active in the world today. Uh, some of them are in the realm of earth, like you see this in the Gospels. There are demons in the ministry of Jesus. He casts them out of people. He's casting out evil spirits. So clearly some of them are alive and well 
in, in this realm, uh, but some of them, we don't exactly know how this works, but some of these angels, these fallen angels, these demons, are consigned to hell and they are in chains, they are in darkness, and they are bound for the future day of judgments. So, this is the story, the watches that Jude is drawing on. And again, let's pull back and remind ourselves the overall point that he is making here is around the judgment of God. Just as God judges Israel for their rebellion, he has also judged the angels. Not even angels escape the judgment of God. Those that choose to rebel, those that chose to disobey, leave their place, uh, he has judged and he has sentenced already, and they are awaiting their final punishment. So you're getting this picture of quite a pervasive sweep of God's judgment. It affects humanity, also affects even the angelic realm. Okay, story number three. Again, now we come back to familiar ground, and this is a story again from the Bible. So now we've had one story from the Bible, one from outside the Bible, now we come back again to Scripture. Verse 7. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. This story can be found in Genesis chapter 19. Uh, it's part of our Bible, thank goodness. <laughs> and uh, although it's not a pleasant story, it's one of the most horrendous acts of God's judgment in the Old Testament. So Sodom and Gomorrah, these towns that were just full of immorality, just full of sexual perversion, immorality, just horrendous sin. We don't need to go into the details, but you do, we do have the story in here that Abraham's relative Lot and his family get caught up in all this because they're visiting the, town of, the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they almost become, Lot's children almost become the victims of sexual abuse in that context, and they narrowly escape. God makes a way of escape. And for those of you that remember the story, Lot's family, they leave Sodom and Gomorrah. As they are leaving, God rains down burning sulfur upon the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah and destroys completely these cities and their inhabitants, leaving only Lot and his family. And do you remember that detail where Lot's wife look, looks back? And what happens to her? Turns into a pillar of salt. Yes, just, just for looking back towards the, towards the cities. So... Again, a really severe, uncomfortable picture of God's judgment. Like, this is not just dying in your sleep kind of thing. This is burning sulfur raining down upon cities and towns. This is difficult. This is uncomfortable. But this is in the Bible. And so, you have, again, a story of God's judgment. And just think about how the picture is getting even broader now. So, God's judgment upon Israel then God's judgment upon the angels, now God's judgment upon the nations outside of Israel, so the other nations, other peoples of the earth, God's judgment is widening, we're getting a bigger and bigger picture. Final story in verse 9, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, do you all remember that story from Sunday school about the archangel Michael disputing with the devil about the body of Moses? No, you don't, because you didn't learn it in Sunday school, because that's not in the Bible. This is another one of those stories from outside the Bible. And I know this is a bit uncomfortable again, but Jude is quoting from another source here that's not in the Old Testament. This time, it's not Enoch, it's a book called The Assumption of Moses. Another book from Jewish tradition 
So you see how for Jewish people, they had, the, they had the Hebrew Scriptures, but then there were these other books of tradition that grew up, which were also considered authoritative. One of those is the Assumption of Moses. That book was written probably around about the first century, and it, it describes prophecy uh, that relate to the time of Moses and Joshua. That's why it's about Moses going back a long, long way before Jude's day. There's only one surviving copy, by the way, of the Assumption of Moses uh, today. So where we learn about this is from the church father Origen. And here's what he says. He's writing in the, in the second, third century. In the Assumption of Moses, to which booklet the apostle Jude refers in his epistle, the archangel Michael, when he is arguing with the devil about the body of Moses, says that because of the devil's inspiration, the serpent had become the cause of Adam and Eve's transgression. So Origen tells us that that's the source. He tells us that Jude is relying on this book called The Assumption of Moses. That's the only way we know, because Jude doesn't specifically say it. But Origen's a pretty reliable source, and so we know that there's this other document there in the background that Jude is drawing from here. So as the story goes, and again, like this is Jewish tradition. I'm not saying this is Holy Scripture, but this is how Jude uh, describes it, and this is Jude, the biblical writer. Uh, when Moses died, there was some kind of argument between Michael, the, the archangel Michael, one of the greatest of the angels, and the devil. Now, by the way, the only thing in the Bible that we know about Moses' death is he, was, he died and his body was buried in Moab. And, and in fact, the text says, and nobody to this day knows where he was buried. So that's all we get in the Bible. But when you, when you put Jude, which is also the Bible, uh, together with this, then you have this bigger story of what's going on, that when Moses died, Satan stepped in, and he made claim to the body of Moses. And it seems like that's related to the fact that Moses, in his earlier days, killed an Egyptian. Some of you remember that story? Now, Moses killed an Egyptian, so he was guilty of murder. So when he dies, Satan steps in and claims the corpse of Moses. He claims the body of Moses, because Moses is a murderer. Michael disputes this, and there is this great big argument between Michael and Satan. In the context of that argument, the archangel Michael says, the Lord rebuke you to Satan. And the point Jude is making, again, let's keep focus on the main thing. There's a lot of detail here, but the point is that Michael did not rebuke Satan directly. He didn't say, I rebuke you. He said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, that's actually quite good to remember when we're talking about the devil today. Some Christians get a bit excited. And sometimes it's, you know, you get all this language, you know, I'm going to rebuke the devil. I'm going to cast out these demons. You know, we're going to rebuking Satan as if we have this authority. To... Listen, not even the archangel Michael felt comfortable rebuking the devil. What did he do? He invoked the Lord's authority. The Lord rebuke you. That's just a good principle for us to remember. The authority is not in us. It is in Jesus. Uh, Satan is way more powerful than you are, but he is way less powerful than Jesus. That's the point. So you just stand behind Jesus and let his authority come to bear on all powers of darkness, evil, and Satan himself. So this is what the archangel Michael does, is he invokes God's authority. And so the picture is that here is God being called on to judge Satan. It's another picture of God's judgment, and this time the judgment is against Satan himself. All right, I know there's a lot in that. This has gone in some weird and wacky directions this morning. Uh, but let me just pull all this together for you so you can see these four stories. Four pictures of God's judgment. You've got God's judgment upon Israel, story number one. You've got God's judgment upon the angels, story number two. 
You've got God's judgment upon the nations, story number three, and you've got God's judgment upon Satan himself, story number four. What is Jude doing? I know we can go down the rabbit hole with the details, but let's just keep the main thing the main thing. What he's doing, us is, what he's doing is showing us, unmistakably, God is our judge. That's the big point, if you take nothing else home today. God is our judge, and God's judgment is very real. That all creation, humanity, and all created beings ultimately stand under the judgment of God. That is not a popular message today, is it? Like I can't think of too many things that are less popular to say than that. Because if there's one thing we know about human beings is we want to be our own judge. Like We really don't like this message that there is another judge. We would much rather, and this is how we live, live like I am the judge of my life. I want to make the decisions for me that I think are best for me. I want to be judge and jury of my own life and my own conduct and my own decisions and my own destiny. I don't want to submit myself to some higher power. We don't want to bring ourselves under accountability to someone else. We just want to be autonomous, self-determined people who are the judge of our own lives. And, And what's even more fun is being the judge of someone else's life. To be able to judge other people, we kind of like that as well. But what we don't want is to be judged by somebody higher than us. What we don't want is to think of God as our judge. But this is the unmistakable reality, not just from this passage, but page after page, chapter after chapter, book after book in the Bible, there is this unmistakable reality that God is our judge. He has created us. He has brought all things into being that exist. And because of that, He has rightful authority over all things. And He stands over us as our true and good and righteous but just judge. He is the judge of all things or people, or beings, and one day we will all stand before Him and give an account for our lives. We may live like that's not the case. We may not believe that. doesn't change the reality. We may live whatever kind of lives we want, and it may seem for a while like there is no judge at all, but one day there'll be a day of reckoning, and we will see that there is one true holy judge of all before whom we will have to give account. That's the picture we get from Jude and many other places in the Bible. Now, when you think about this uncomfortable reality of God's judgment, here's a question. What is the greatest act of God's judgment in the Bible? Just think through the whole biblical story. These four stories Jude gives us here, each one of them are a a severe act of God's judgment. There are many others that Jude could have picked, right? A lot of different ways in which God judges people. Often when we think about God's judgment, we think of the final judgment. We think that's the big one. That day when we stand before the great white throne of judgment, that's the big final act of God's judgment. I want to suggest that is not the greatest act of judgment in the Bible. The greatest act of God's judgment in the Bible is not the one in the future. It's the one in the past. And it is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the great ultimate act of judgment that God has brought about. It is when Jesus died. You might not think about that as an act of judgment. We think of it as an act of salvation. But aren't they two sides of the same coin? Like, what are you saved from? What's salvation if it's not deliverance, rescue, and salvation from something? And what we're saved from is the judgment of God. So the 20th century theologian Karl Barth had a wonderful little phrase for this. And he says, on the cross, God became the judged judge. Just let that sit with you for a minute just beautiful. There's just a world of meaning in there that God on the cross became the judged judge. He is the world's true and rightful judge. But what happened on the cross? 
He became the judged. He took upon Himself the judgment we deserve. Because we can look at all these stories in Jude, and we can, we can poke the finger at these Israelites and say, weren't they a rebellious bunch in the wilderness? Weren't these wicked, sinful people that rebelled against Moses and against Aaron? Who do they think they were? And then we realize, oh, that's me. Like we see ourselves in that story before too long, don't we? And if we don't, that just kind of compounds our sin because we're self-righteous. Like we are those Israelites. We are just as sinful as them. Even, listen, it's uncomfortable, but even Sodom and Gomorrah. Like we can say, oh, that sexual perversion, that immorality. The reality is, friends, we're no different to them. Your life might look different. Our practices might look different. We are just as depraved as they are. We are just as sinful as Sodom and Gomorrah. I know you might not think it because you, you know, you kind of got this whole put together life, but we are just as broken, sinful, failed, flawed, wicked, whatever word you want to use, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the Israelites in the wilderness. We are sinful people. I know that's bad news, but you've got to feel the bad news if you want to get to the good news. So we are in this space just as the Israelites were, just as Sodom and Gomorrah were, all deserving of God's judgment. But here is the beauty of the cross. On the cross, Jesus took that judgment on himself. He took what you deserve. We stand under the judgment of God. We were objects of his wrath, but Christ on the cross took that for us, carried that for us, bore the wrath of God for us so that we wouldn't have to. Is that good news? Anybody? Yes, come on. This is, I mean, this is the gospel. Like, this is the heart of what we believe as Christians, if you believe it. It's such good news. I mean, think about Sodom and Gomorrah burning sulfur down upon these cities. That was nothing compared to the burning sulfur of God's judgment that fell upon Jesus Christ on the cross. Not literally burning sulfur, but something far worse, the wrath of a righteous God falling upon the one person who never deserved it, the innocent Son of God. That was like burning sulfur, but infinitely worse. The, God, the judgment of God, infinitely worse than the plague upon the Israelites. Infinitely worse than the chains of darkness that those demons are currently bound in. Infinitely worse than the rebuke to Satan was the judgment of God that fell upon the Son of God on the cross. That's what took place. That's what had to took place for, take place for your salvation. Can you feel it? Can you sense it? Can you have some kind of reaction to that, that this is what it took for you to be saved. You just prayed a little prayer and said, Jesus, come into my heart. And you never realized what it cost for you to step into that eternal life and that relationship with Jesus Christ. What it took was Jesus taking the wrath of the Father, the righteous anger of God poured out until that cup was drained to its dregs so that you could have redemption and you could have eternal life. That's the judgment of God. But that's ultimately why we can say the judgment of God is actually really good news. Because even though we were objects of His wrath, we have become through Jesus Christ objects of His grace. Not because there's anything deserving in you or I, but purely and simply because of the all-sufficient merit of Jesus Christ our Savior. It's the gospel. That's what we're talking about this morning. It's the judgment of God that leads us straight into the arms of mercy. So Jesus has faced this judgment for you, and he's faced it for me. And as you read those stories in the book of Jude, just see them as little pictures that point you to the cross. See them as little tastes. They seem so severe. They're nothing compared to the judgment that was unleashed upon the cross. And because of the cross, that now changes the picture of what's going to happen to you and me at the final judgment. And that is real. Like, that's still coming. 
So let's just deal with that really quickly. What's going to happen at the end of time when Jesus returns? We're all going to stand. This is Revelation 20. It'd be great to go home and read it. We're going to stand before the great white throne of judgment. And God is going to open some books, some books up. And guess what those books have got in them? The rec- No, they've got the record of your deeds. Yeah, you all thought you were going to be saved by grace. Guess what comes first? First, God's going to open up the books of deeds, the records of all that you have done. Do you know there's a judgment by works? In the Bible, Paul's really clear about it in 2 Corinthians. He said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that we will receive what is due for us, for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. There's a judgment according to works. You are going to hear God read out your deeds. And how's that going to go for you? If you're me, not too well. If you're me, that's going to be a very uncomfortable, awkward moment. We're all going to go through that. It's going to be difficult because we are going to hear God say to us, you are guilty. According to the books of deeds, you are guilty. And you are deserving of wrath. You are deserving of the eternal fire that those angels are going to be consigned to. But before you get up and leave church, there's one more step. (laughs) Thank God, there's one more step. God's going to open the book of life. He's going to put away the books of deeds and he will open the book of life. And that is a list of the names of those who are united to Jesus in his death and his resurrection. It's not a list of all the good people It's not a list of all the moral people. It's not a list of all the people who came to church every Sunday and tithed and served and did all the stuff. It's a list of those people who have bowed the knee before Jesus and received his atoning sacrifice for their sins, who have taken hold of the mercy of Jesus and known that just as Aaron stood between life and death and the plague of the Israelites, Jesus has stood between life and death for us and rescued us from the wrath of the Father. Now, the sad news is those whose names are not in the book of life, they still stand under the judgment of God. They still stand under the punishment of God. There is no basis for their salvation if their name is not there and they're not united to Jesus. And so they suffer the fate. They suffer the eternal punishment, the eternal fire. The Bible describes this as hell. That's not a comfortable reality. It's not a place we like to talk about, but that's eternal judgment and that's separation from God. But for those whose names are in the book of life, who are united to Jesus in his death and resurrection, God says, even though your sins are great, Jesus has paid the sentence for you. You are forgiven and you are free. Welcome home. And we are ushered in to the new heavens and the new earth, the final kingdom. Not because we deserve to be there. There's nothing in you that's going to deserve to be there. But because Jesus has paved the way for you to be there. You are there on his authority and you will be there by his blood and his body broken. And God will say to those whose names are in the book of life, welcome home. Come and enjoy eternal reward. Come and enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. And then this age gives way to the new age. And judgment becomes justice. It becomes a world in which there is peace and righteousness. But all that takes the purging of sin. And it takes the purging of evil from this world so that we can enter into the new heavens and the new earth. And so, I know it's a heavy message this morning, but this theme of judgment, it is one that we need to be sobered by. It is one that we need to feel the weight of it because only when you really feel the weight of the judgment that you deserve can you take hold of the goodness and the gift of the eternal life that Jesus has brought you. 
Judgment and mercy always go together in the Bible. Always. Wherever, wherever there's a word of judgment, then there's a word of mercy. Wherever there is condemnation, there is redemption. Wherever our sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so we need to take seriously the judgment of God because it is real and God is a holy and righteous and wrathful God. But we can be grateful, incredibly grateful for the love of God that has sent his son to take that judgment upon himself so that we can be free both in this life and we can know that we will be saved and spared from the judgment of God in the life to come. There's a great song by David Crowder called Crushing Snakes. I don't know if you've heard of it. Add it to your Spotify playlist this afternoon and have a listen to it. I want to, it's about this, this theme of the judgment and the final victory of God. I want to read you some lyrics from this song as we finish and then I'll pray. We're not afraid. Terrors of night, arrows that fly by day. 10,000 may fall, but we, we will remain. We're not afraid. A promise of God can never be turned away. Walking on hands of angels, crushing snakes. Safe under the shadow of his wings. Our fortress and our strength. Our fortress. We're taking back our freedom. Our battle has been won. We have been liberated. Back from the dead we've come. We're taking back our freedom. Our battle has been won. We have been liberated. Back from the dead we've come. God, we come to you this morning uh, feeling the heavy weight of the reality that these verses describe your judgment. And God, we want to ask you to forgive us for the times we've taken that too lightly. And we have not, we just have not seen it, God. We just have not understood this, that your judgment, God, that is righteous and true. Father, I just want to pray this morning. If there, if there is anyone here that does not know you, Jesus, I want to pray now that you would draw them to yourself and place faith in their heart to respond to you, Jesus. Anyone here this morning, God, who just still sits under that judgment, who doesn't know salvation, if that's, if that's you this morning and the Holy Spirit is nudging your heart, then uh, there is just that, I just have that sense that God is speaking to you and this word is for you and, and you may be looking on, feeling like you're on the outside looking into all of this and, and that might fill you with despair or hope or make you want to run a mile away from all this, but I just pray in God's grace and favor that he would draw you to himself that he would open your eyes, that he would lift the veil this morning, and you would see that where there is judgment, there is mercy. And God, I want to pray that you would reveal to the heart of anyone who, who is far from you this morning, who has maybe drifted from you, wandered away from you, or never known what it is to have a relationship with you. God, I want to pray that you'd reveal your mercy to them this morning. Lord, open their eyes to the reality of your judgment so that they might see your heart of mercy, so that they might see your heart of grace. I want to pray you'd reveal it to them now, Lord Jesus. And that it might be your kindness that leads us to repentance. It might be your grace at work in their life. Would you plant a seed of faith in the heart of anyone this morning who doesn't know you? Anyone listening to this? Anyone watching this online? Jesus, would you plant a seed of faith in their heart to respond, to stir belief, to stir hope, to stir trust, that they may bow their knee, look to you, Jesus, and entrust their life to you and your mercy, taking hold of what you have done for them on the cross. Anyone, Jesus, hearing these words,
who still stands under your judgment today. God, would you deliver them? God, would you deliver them while there's still time, while they still have breath in their lungs? God, we lift up to you friends and family this morning who don't know you, Jesus. We just have this heaviness of heart, God, and we just want to pray that you would bring people out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your Son. We want to pray you would rescue people, God, and we know they have a decision to make, but we want to pray you would draw them, that you would call them, that you would show up in their lives, do whatever it takes to reach them and help them to see what you have already done for them so that they can receive eternal life. God, anyone who's just not sure about that final step of faith, I want to pray, God, that you would just give them the courage of your spirit this morning to step into your embrace step into your family, to look to you, Jesus, and to place their trust in you. We thank you, Jesus, for all you've done to make this possible. Everything that needs to be done has been done. It is finished. It is accomplished. Lord, place it on our hearts to respond now, we pray. And those of us, God, that do know you, never, ever let us be smug or conceited about this. But give us that heavy heart, Lord, that all people would know. All people would, be, would respond and more would be saved and others would be delivered by your mercy just as you've delivered us by your mercy. God, we look to you. We acknowledge you. We thank you that ultimately your judgment is good news for the world because on the other side of your judgment is mercy. Thank you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.